Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. So today we're going to be talking about raw dairy, and we designed this episode to really encompass everything I wish I had learned right from the beginning of my raw milk journey. Uh, When I first started investigating this topic, I listened to podcasts and read articles and books and blogs and talked to a number of folks, including the dairy farmer. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is basically a summary of some of the most important facts around raw dairy. So when we're talking about raw dairy, I think the first thing that that I want to know, um, and I think a lot of listeners will want to know, is you know what is raw dairy, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, why do we why are we calling it raw? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, we have evidence that humans have been drinking animal milk all the way back to either six thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago, depending on your source. So we've been consuming milk from lactating animals for a very long time. But it wasn't until around 160 years ago that we started doing something to this milk. We started processing it in a way that would heat it, thus gave us the opportunity to say, well, the unheated version is called raw, you know? I have a post on my Instagram where I liken this to, you know, calling an orange right off the tree a raw orange. You would never walk up to the grocery store manager and say, I'm sorry, like, do you have any... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> raw apples in the in the produce section yeah. because we understand that that fruit is a whole naturally occurring ready to consume food right off of the tree or the bush or the ground like whatever it's growing vac- venue is uh, but the same is not true for milk we assume that milk always has to be treated in a certain way and that it always has been treated but really it's like a relatively recent phenomenon so we're going to talk about that today I mean, I think even just calling it raw dairy, I know we, I know we were talking about this a couple of days ago or last night. It's, it's, it's almost like being branded in a way that sounds kind of gross. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we first discussed the idea of raw dairy, I think the first thing I said was, oh, I don't want to drink that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds gross. I, I, um, what, what did I say? Um, you know, think like raw oyster. Yeah. I mean, I, I love raw oysters. I also love raw oysters. But they're not, they don't sound super appetizing. Right? They don't look super appetizing, honestly. Yeah, and a lot of people are freaked out by raw foods. I think that's the nature of our culture right now is like we think everything needs to be sanitized and sterilized and we shouldn't be eating raw foods. Um, like sushi is like the most commonly accepted raw food. But it's because it's that, called sushi and not raw fish and rice. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so it, it's... It's a tricky naming game for sure. I I actually prefer to just say real dairy and Mm. we'll get into why later in this episode. But there are a lot of people who um, like Natasha Campbell McBride calls it living milk. So there are some other people in the real food space that have sort of tried to rebrand it because raw dairy makes it sound irresponsible to consume. The same way you would say I would never eat raw egg. It sounds risky. Right. Right. Where sushi is raw, it's risky. Yeah. Yeah. If you eat some raw burger it needs to be cooked more right right wow okay yeah i think uh i think a fun social experiment that we could all try is is begin calling foods that we normally don't call raw just call them raw see see how people respond how they react you know 
looking for a raw apple. <laughs> People would be genuinely confused. They would be confused. All right, so, we're, so, and we'll get more into the facts of kind of like raw milk and kind of like what constitutes, you know, the differences between. But I think we want to start at the beginning, uh, talking about the history of dairy and pasteurization. Mm-hmm. And so, take take me back to to the start. Like, where, where where did we begin with with pasteurization of dairy, making it not raw, if you will? Right, the cooked version, as I like to say. Yeah. So, like I mentioned before. You know, we have evidence that humans have been consuming animal milks for a very long time. And it wasn't until about 160 years ago, which if you think about the timeline of humanity, that's pretty recent, uh, that we started processing our milk. And that all really started with a man named Louis Pasteur, hence the name pasteurization, right? He coined that. And he was a... Uh, microbiologist and um, he was studying sort of like uh, this was in a time where we had just sort of discovered microbes and bacteria and so he was um, doing his work in the late 1800s 1860s and his first sort of gateway into this space was when he was commissioned to help the French wine industry because they were having issues with spoilage so obviously France is known for their wine, and um, they were having issues when they were trying to transport that wine um, a, a far distance. And so he basically came up with the idea to heat that wine for a portion of time, and then it would kill the enzymes that ultimately led to spoilage because, you know, foods naturally break down through enzymatic processes. Um, so he would destroy those enzymes through the heating, and then the wine would be able to have sort of a longer shelf life, if you want to call it. And so um, what's funny is that while that worked for a while and the French wine industry was thankful, um, they actually ended up getting disillusioned with that process and stopped a couple uh, years later. But um, he took that same application, that same understanding of, hey, if there are dangerous microbes or enzymes in this example in a fluid um you know, food that we're consuming, then we can heat those and kill those off, right? He was the author of what we call germ theory today. So that basically dictates how our medical system is set up right now. It operates from a very um, germ theory-based theology, really. And the opposite of that was from uh, Anton Beauchamp, who really coined the terrain theory. And so if you ever hear people in the wellness space or the, the real food space argue about germ theory and terrain theory, um, it's a really heated discussion. And the reason why people get so heated about it is because it lays the foundation for our entire approach to health. So Pasteur was very much in the, in the camp of there are dangerous microbes outside of the body. When they enter into the body, we get sick. Right, so we need to do something to either kill them off or kill them before they get into our body, or um, it's this very sort of like victimhood where we fall prey to the dangerous microbes around us. And remember, this is before we had an understanding of the microbiome. Like, I would love to hear what Pasteur would say if he knew that we had uh, nine times the bacterial uh, DNA cells in our body versus human <laughs> like this is before we had this understanding that we have living bugs in us um and Bechamp's really his terrain theory was really about 
um, hey, the body, when the, when the body is in a state of dysfunction or dysregulation, then we can, then the metabolic processes break down and we can get sick um, from the inside. So it's less of this like, oh, this outside thing causes. So all of that is super important when we understand what happened to dairy when we made this shift from the industrial revolution. And so I actually want to read a really good summary out of my um, one of my favorite books called The Raw Milk Revolution. And it just really clearly breaks down the shift and it paints a picture. So I'm going to read a, a section of that. I mean, before you get into this, I think the thing that's ringing in my ears, and this is very, this is very common, something I'm seeing often with this sort of stuff. Every conversation we have like this, I, I recall in a, in a earlier pod, you know, in, in our last podcast with the USDA, yeah. that oftentimes these sorts of protocols or processes are not created in some malicious way. Mm-hmm. It's more or less um, what I'm hearing is, is that at the time, right? We're talking history of this. Mm-hmm. At the time, this protocol, this process was for our benefit. Yeah. It was it was something that, that uh, was very beneficial and... If I was living, you know, 200 years ago or 160 years ago or whatever, and the conditions of then were um, were very unsafe, I also would want something to protect me. Yeah. Right. I would say it was a it was perceived benefit. Yeah, because I think if we take the information we have now and reflect it and and look through that lens on history, right? History is like hindsight is 2020. Um, I think a lot of what, what Pasteur did was beneficial to the community and that people were no longer sick, but what he did also was set the stage for a very broken, uh, medical and food system that we live with today and sort of set us up in this rigid, um, ideology that we're having a really hard time breaking free from, even though we have the science and understanding to shatter some of those myths. So Mm. it's, it started with good intentions. Um, I do not believe, I, I don't know Pasteur's character as a person. I, I don't believe that he came in and was like, I'm going to just flip the dairy industry on its head mm. because the wine thing didn't work for me. Um, he's also like, yeah, he, he had played a major role in how we view health and medicine today worldwide. So I agree with you. He, he had probably likely good intentions, but um, you know, it's, it's a system that doesn't leave very much room for, um, a more holistic view of health. It's short-sighted thinking, right? Because. And, out, a, and outdated to be honest. Ex- exactly. And at yeah. the time it was, as people started implementing it and t- turning it into something that was very, you know, all, Hey, this is going to be the way we do it from now on. Right. It was short-sighted because. They were thinking like, oh, well, forevermore now we will do this. And they didn't think of like, well, what kind of impact is doing this forever going to have? Um, and, and quite frankly, also, this is an example of treating the symptoms mm-hmm. of a deeper problem. Exactly. And this is something that, again, is so prevalent in the nature of humans. Yeah. Um, I have a headache. I'm going to take Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Other, rather than saying, hey, I have a headache. Um, have I had enough water today? Yeah. Um, to, um, have I been sleeping? Am I overworked? Have I been eating the right amount of food? Have I been eating quality food? Um, you know, there, there's. Do I need rest? Do I need? Uh, do I need to get outside and get some fresh air? Like, 
I think we're so quick to just treat the symptoms of something. Mm-hmm. And when that works, we just pile it on. Next thing you know, you're, you're in 2022 and there's like a, a, a stack of symptom treating things that are applied to just the basics of life. When in reality, the deeper issues could be found um, way up, the, way up the line, way up the chain. Right in this example, it'd be um, right. Uh, the cows are just being improperly treated. Right, right. and so we're going to get into that. But I, I love that. It's a very uh, reactionary way of living life and, and structuring our society. And I think what we'll talk about today is like that. That can have some shortfalls, some shortcomings. So. Um, I want to read this section just because I feel like it so eloquently highlights uh, a snapshot of what was going on. So obviously pre-industrial revolution, people are in an agrarian you know, society. They have small farms. They maybe have a family cow or a small homestead that they have a couple cows. And they're milking right out of their backyard or their neighbor's yard. And it's just like, we're not really transporting milk. We're probably drinking it within the first couple of days. We're converting it to yogurts and butter and all those things. Um, but what happened was, you know, as we made this giant shift in society, which is um, impacted even today, life today, uh, the system started to break down. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. It says, It was when America was being transformed by the Industrial Revolution of the early and mid-1800s that the problems began. As masses of people migrated from countryside to city in search of high-paying jobs, there were business people who brought cows in from the country as well to provide basic food, alcohol for the adults and milk for the children, ironically from the same source. First, corn and barley would be fermented to make vodka and whiskey. The leftover grains, their nutrients depleted, would be fed to the cows housed in adjoining buildings. These were the first feedlots, the first major effort at agricultural industrialization based on exploiting farm animals on a large scale for purely economic reasons to maximize profits. Here's how Robert Hartley, an advocate for the poor who investigated the urban dairy industry, described the situation in early 1840s. For anyone who is still skeptical as to the pernicious quality of milk. And this is his quote. If the wind is in the right quarter, he will smell the milk, he will smell the dairy a mile off, and on reaching it, his visual and nasal organs will, without any affectation of squeamishness, be so offended at the filth and effluvia, which abounds the still slop milk will probably become the object of his unutterable loathing the remainder of his life. His attention will probably be drawn first to the huge distillery sending out its Tartarian fumes and blackened with age and smoke, casting a somber air all around. Contiguous thereto, he will see numerous low pens in which many hundreds of cows owned by different persons are closely huddled together amid confined air and the stench of their own excrements. He will also see the various appendages and troughs to conduct and receive the hot sludge from the still with which the gourd, with which to gorge the stomachs of these unfortunate animals, and all within an area of a few hundred yards. Hartley describes further how the cows at first didn't care for the distillery slop. The dairy owners would then deprive them of water so that the cows ate the slop to satisfy their thirst. For a few months, the milk production soared, but eventually they became diseased, their teeth falling out and unable to stand. At that point, they were sold for slaughter and their meat sold as beef. Okay, so that paints like a really sobering 
image of what was going on. Um, these cows in these sort of like adjoining distillery setups were completely different from a cow grazing on grass, right? And so because of this situation, because of the poor sanitation, because of the poor diet, because of the poor health of the cow, we were milking those cows and people were starting to get really, really sick and dying. Like that's a real reality. And so I think when we have these, we have these like initial fears about raw dairy, that's the picture we have in our head is like, the black and white movie that has like the 1800s depiction of city cows and it is really a gross imagery so um i mean it's almost like they were using the cows as garbage disposals right and and this is before we had you know as a society respect for um animal humanely animal treatment right but this is before we really put much thought into caring for um animals on a on a industrial scale because honestly we hadn't done that like we had our family cow but what happens when you lump a bunch of them in together then who's going to care for those and so today that you know other things similarly happen but um the reason why so many people were getting sick in those first early years of this transition into cities was because the cows themselves were ill. And this is a point I want to make really clear because the reason why we fear raw milk today is due to foodborne illness. And foodborne illness comes from sanitation issues. So this is when um, the milk, which is still in its raw state, a living um, viable vector for any sort of pathogen, um, is able to multiply those bacteria, right? And so, of course, it, it, if you are introducing a listeria or an E. coli or um, a salmonella into that milk product, it's going to multiply to a certain degree. But then actually we have, we have records that says that um, raw milk inherently can um, has some protective measures against those pathogens. But regardless, the difference is Back then, we were worried about bovine tuberculosis, making people really sick with TB. Today, we have testing mechanisms to make sure that our cows are healthy. And so the only fear that comes in with raw dairy drinking or consumption today, at least in the U.S., is um, irresponsible handling of the milk, right? Either someone has either some of the... um, bacteria were introduced in the milking process or in the bottling process or um, the udders weren't sanitized prior to milking, things like that. So it's a huge, uh, I want to make that differentiation because as long as you have healthy cows, you have potential for healthy milk. But back then you heard that's the last, that's the furthest thing from a healthy cow. So in a lot of places, the cows were not healthy and thus they were producing right? They were producing milk that was, that was truly making people sick. Um, and so what I'm hearing is, is that, man, the fear of then and now is very, very different, but the fear, I want to say that differently. The fear is the same, but the cause of said fear, whether we know it or not is extremely different, right? Because the reason why pasteurization of milk was implemented then was to save us from milk and from cows that was being incredibly poorly treated. Mm-hmm. And so in reality, it was almost like the Tylenol for the headache 
that was caused by ourselves. Exactly. We didn't ask ourselves, hey, why all of a sudden are all of these people who drink real milk straight from the udder in the countryside now falling sick and dying? Why do we have children dying from this? Why Why do we have uh, just mass outbreaks of these diseases? And instead of asking ourselves, how have the cows changed <laughs> or how has our environment changed? Um we were very excited about this sort of new scientific discovery of bacteria and pathogens and germs. And so it came at a time where it's, it perfectly explained the problem, even though the problem was a symptom of a greater systemic issue. Uh, they didn't approach it that way. And so, um, but what's interesting is that that happened in, in the, what I just read was from the 1840s, right? So this is a really long progression because even still in the turn of the century in the 1900s, pasteurization was not um, adopted on a wide scale. Like the very first state to require pasteurization in the United States was Michigan, and that didn't happen until 1948. So we're talking about about 100 years have passed before, and that was the first state, and then other states followed suit. Um, it wasn't until 1987 when the FDA finally mandated all, the pasteurization of all milk and milk products for human consumption. So uh, we're talking about a long time span, and in that you had periods where you would have what's called um, voluntary pasteurization programs. So basically the dairy farmers could, it was left up to them whether they wanted to adopt this new technology. But I, I want to make it clear too that when something is a slow burn like that, like over 100 years, obviously not everyone consuming dairy at that time was getting sick, right? So there were still people on the countryside who were having zero issues but the issues concentrated in the cities um, obviously caused a lot of concern and so that's going to get a lot of the attention Um, but if it were a widespread instant all of a sudden milk is for some reason inherently dangerous we would have seen a switch a little bit faster it wouldn't have taken 100 years to adopt this and even today I mean we're talking specifically in the U.S. right now um there are plenty of countries where raw milk is still the standard. Real milk is still the standard. So I, I, I think that bit of history is important for us to understand. I think it's huge. I think it, it, it is extremely alarming for me to think that it wasn't a nationwide, and just for the U.S., right? A nationwide U.S. decision until 1987. Right. I mean, that's like, it feels, I mean, that's, it's pretty recent. Extremely recent. Mm-hmm. And it's it's recent enough to not truly feel the repercussions of something like that, a decision like that. And um, I, yeah, that, that, that is, uh, so, so, you know, we're talking about pasteurization. We're talking about the mistreatment of cows, talking about people getting sick. And this, this Louis Pasteur. Pasteur, yeah. Pasteur. However you want to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Louis Pasteur, he, he has this process. He's pasteurizing. Uh, we're, we're pasteurizing milk now. Mm-hmm. And um, while I, the, the upside, you know, saying that in quotations, but is that it's eliminating uh, potential pathogens and bacteria within the milk, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which sounds like upside mm-hmm. and is upside. Um, right, but what what are the downfalls of pasteurization? What what are the what what is the reason for this podcast episode today? Why why are 
why are we trying to um, potentially steer away from pasteurization? Yeah, I would say I would even rephrase the upside in quotations to say that pasteurization, what it really does is takes potentially dirty milk and makes it um, less harmful for humans to consume because pasteurization has zero benefit to clean, ethically sourced dairy. Um, And we'll get into that later, but some issues with the actual uh, process. So for people who don't know, there's all different types of pasteurization. Um, but basically at its core, it's this process of heating a liquid to a certain temperature for a set amount of time. Whatever we've basically established can, quote, kill all of the bacteria. And then it, it essentially sterilizes the product. So um, I think that's a pretty basic thing for us to wrap our head, head around. But what we don't understand is what else it's destroying in the process. Because we know that all bacteria are not harmful. We know that we don't have this intense battle with constantly sanitizing our environment. Because at the end of the day, that makes us sicker. So um, some of the things that it destroys are the critical enzymes that are alive in the milk that help us digest the milk. Like unpasteurized milk contains uh it basically promotes the production of lactase in the gut which lactase is the enzyme used to break down lactose which is the milk sugar but when you pasteurize it that sort of prompting in the gut it goes away Um, it also incredibly reduces the vitamin content so pasteurization completely destroys vitamin c b12 and b6 Um, It destroys any potential beneficial bacteria like lactobacillus, which is the same bacteria that is used in the sourdough process. Um, And overall, it denatures the proteins. So a lot of people think of milk as a really protein-rich option, and that's why our kids need it. Um, It also um, reduces the bioavailability of calcium and phosphorus, which again, what do we think of when we're like, oh, we need to have, we need to drink milk. Good for your bones. Right. But when we process it in this way, that stuff is greatly um, either damaged, becoming inactivated, destroyed, or denatured, unfortunately. And the other side of this pasteurization thing is that we do something else called homogenizing our milk, which is basically where you know, milk in its natural form has cream that rises to the top, which is consistent of the butterfat and then the the milk underneath. And, you know, for whatever reason, consumer trends or um, convenience, honestly, we decided that we wanted our fluid dairy to be a consistent um, texture and like viscosity throughout. And so homogenization takes those fat globules forces them at high pressure through this tiny little screen and basically breaks them up into a bunch of little tiny, even like microscopic versions of that fat. And so it floats evenly through the milk. And um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people have um, hypothesized that because those fat globules are so small that they're actually able to permeate the gut lining and go directly into the bloodstream or because those that because it's been so denatured, um, it elicits an immune response from the body. So there's a lot of um, evolving research around homogenization. So homogenized, and that's kind of just a fun word regardless, but that process is purely for like liquid presentation preference. 
yeah, it changes the color of the milk. So that's why the milk in the grocery stores is bright white. Um, if you get milk straight from a cow, you'll notice the milk actually has a blue tint and the cream is either white or yellow. It's like if you ever have looked at breast milk, obviously it's not bright white and there's a cream line. That's the same thing. Uh, we don't homogenize or pasteurize the milk that we give to our babies, right? So, um, it is purely because it's easier to bake with. It was a consumer trend that um, drove market demand. And uh, it started in um, the late 1800s is really when that process began. So these two processes sort of evolved side by side, pasteurization and homogenization. Uh, I actually never knew that about homogenized milk. Yeah. I never really knew what it was. It sounded and like it was more clean homogenized no yeah and so one of the main reasons why we love our fresh whole milk is because of the fat rich vitamin content right but when you are forcing a liquid through um really tiny screens at high high pressure you're breaking up the structure at a molecular level like that's your goal we have to assume that that's going to change something nutritionally but we often um don't make that connection. So there's actually, like I said, there's a lot of different types of pasteurization. We can jump into that if you want to, um, because they're not all the same. Uh, so there's multiple versions of pasteurization. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in hearing them. Yeah. So, uh, they basically range based on the temperature at which the heat, the milk is heated to and for how long. So vat pasteurization is about 30 minutes heated at the lowest temperature. You said vat? Like v? Vat. Vat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the lowest temperature you can have, which is 155 degrees Fahrenheit or 69 Celsius. And that's for 30 minutes. So that's a really, that's the longest. I think that would be your lowest temp pasteurization that you could have. Um High temp short time pasteurization is at 175 degrees Fahrenheit for 25 seconds, so really quick. And then high temperature short time pasteurization is at 180 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 seconds. But then you have this whole other category that is called ultra high temp pasteurization. And when I was looking at these numbers, I was shocked because this milk and cream gets heated to 280 to 302 degrees Fahrenheit. Like under pressure? How do you even get it that hot? I have no idea. That's a good idea. That's, yes, I think it is sealed in like a pressure. It would have to be. Because it's only for one to two seconds. I was going to say because... It has to be. 212 is the boiling point and it typically... Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about so that. So it's probably under pressure. And then it from there, the ultra high temp is actually processed and moved. It goes directly into um, packaging. So that way it's a completely sterile product. And that is actually shelf stable. So an interesting thing and a lot of things that um, people always assume when they're looking at raw milk or they're looking at milk in a scale is like, okay, good, better, best. What can I get? Well... Let me at least reach for the organic milk in the grocery store. And unfortunately, because the organic dairy farms in the U.S. are so far and few between, that organic milk has to travel so much further than some of the more readily available commercial or conventional dairy farms that they can just ship it, you know, maybe 20 or 50 or 100 miles versus 500 miles. Um, and so because of that, they have to increase the shelf life. And so I'll just, I've never seen an organic brand of milk not be ultra high temp pasteurized, but 
I don't want to generalize. So I'm going to say almost every single type of organic milk is ultra high temp pasteurized um, to that 280 to 302 degree temperature. And what I was reading last night is that that stuff is technically shelf stable. The only reason you mean like not in the fridge. The only reason it is sold in the fridge is so that people aren't freaked out. Because can you imagine going to buy your milk off of like the center aisles because it's been wow. sterilized? I've never heard that. So I think, and and it's unfortunate, right? Because it's with the milk that's being the most um, conscientiously prepared. Like we're trying to feed our gals grass, organic grass from pasture and um live up to the USDA organic labeling and then we're taking this milk and we're we're high temp pasteurizing it so different versions of pasteurization can have lesser or more effect on the nutritional value of that milk yes is that what you're telling me absolutely okay so um this this lower temp right bringing it just above the temperature that that you know bacteria can survive Mm -hmm. 180 degrees yep uh, for well, okay. Um, for milk is the is 180. The, yep. Okay. Fahrenheit. Um, so we're not boiling it. We're not typically boiling milk, right? Because you don't want it to. What is the curdle? Yeah. You don't want it to get gross. Scald it. Scald it. The um, okay. My understanding of pathogens and bacteria is that they can survive up to about 160-ish degrees. Mm-hmm. And so taking it to 180 is probably just a precautionary method. Mm-hmm. It's my it's probably my thought. Um, okay. And so that's that's uh, high low temp pasteurization. And then you were talking about you know finding the different kind of versions of milk. You call it conventional, then there's organic. And you know, as we're there's a lot of people that you know might be listening to this podcast and think to themselves. Um, hey, this is great and all, but now all this is doing is make me feel horrible about, you know, should I just get off of milk? Yeah, right? that's a great question. And, and uh, we're going to get into some sourcing and where to find, you know, raw milk. But but before we do that, it feels like we're kind of on the subject. You know, how can we encourage people or help guide them to maybe find milk? Is there milk on the shelves that is, you know, maybe a little bit better than another? Yeah, absolutely. And if you want, we can run through um, for people who are unaware, you know, there's skim milk, which is fat free milk. There's 2% reduced fat milk, which basically just says the milk fat in the milk has is less than 2% of the total weight. So that percentage is just saying what percentage fat. Um, there's whole milk, which I think people are now reaching for as they sort of unlearn the the fact that fat is bad for us um homogenized milk as we talked about pasteurized milk ultra pasteurized then there's milk fortified with vitamin d so you see a lot of times like it, it's often the organic whole milk also vitamin d um and then there's a2 milk which is um a2 a2 yep a2 milk okay yeah so cows are um naturally produce either a1 or a2 proteins um in their milk and so we can breed cows a specific way so that it, they only produce that A2 protein mm-hmm. in the milk, which, um, you know, through research and anecdotal evidence, we've seen that people can digest that a lot better. So you sometimes see um, people say, oh, I can't handle the casein in the milk. But then when they have A2A2 milk, then they do it better. They, they handle it better. 
Um, but A2 milk can still be pasteurized. So you can find A2 milk at the grocery store that's still pasteurized. Um, and then there's lactose-free milk where they basically introduce the lactase enzyme into the milk and that naturally breaks down the lactose and then you're left with supposedly all the lactose had been consumed, sort of like the, the same method we think of with sourdough, right? Enzymes breaking down the starch, whatever. Yeah. So um, now those are, and there's other labels, I'm sure. Um, but if you're shopping in your grocery store and you're looking at everything and you're like, okay, what's organic? What's grass-fed? What's what? The, the next best option I tell people if they cannot access whole raw dairy, which we'll get into all of this sourcing later in this episode, um, and, uh, frankly, all of the reasons why that's our personal choice, is to find milk that has been low temp pasteurized, meaning that 30 minutes at 155 degrees, 100, well, this one says 155. Low temp, I think, is technically um, 180 and has been non-homogenized. So we can completely skip the homogenization process. That process is not required to sell milk on grocery store shelves by the FDA and the USDA. Like, they're cool if you don't homogenize. They're not cool if you don't pasteurize in some states. So that's the next best option. And oftentimes, um, I know of a couple brands that I believe ship nationwide, and I'll link those in the show notes, but oftentimes, like, you can find those at your Whole Foods or a sort of a smaller um, health food grocer. I know we have one in town where I, I can get the non-homogenized milk from, but I can't find it at Kroger down the street. So it differs for everyone's, um, like, personal local retailer but that stuff can be sold on grocery store shelves and is much more accessible in a um wide context so low to low temp low temp pasteurization right so the lowest and and sometimes farmers will do this and like i know uh my sister-in-law was able to get this type of milk straight from her farmer in indiana because he said this is legally the lowest temp i can I can process this milk at according to the FDA's guidelines and still sell it to you without having to be in some sort of contractual agreement. So um, that's a great option for people. There's also something called, I believe it's called Pima milk. And Sally Fallon um, outlines it in her book, Nourishing Traditions. And it's basically a way to sort of like reconstitute pasteurized dairy. It's really interesting. So I would, I would, if you're like really hungry for, um, I'm trying to look it up. If you're like really hungry for that milk as close to nature intended, but you live in say Nevada where it's virtually impossible to find it, look that up. It's called P-I-I-M-A. Um, you can look up YouTube tutorials. You can look up, obviously you can buy her book cause she has a recipe for it. But, um, those are simple ways to try to get back to milk as, you know, nature intended. So that's like a recipe. That is. That's basically taking a portion of milk and reconstituting it with other things. I for, It was a while. I read it a while so, ago. Uh, and, and, and we don't need to get into that too deep. But I guess what, I'm, what, what yeah, we're saying is, is that there's um, wh- whatever milk we can find that's least tampered with or altered. Sure. Right? So you're finding low temp pasture, pasteurized and then you're finding unhomogenized or not Non-homogenized, yep. Non-homogenized, that's the key word. And that will have a cream line on it, and so you're going to experience a different texture there, for sure. When you, it's and like so, shaking up a Snapple. Yep, either shake it or, you know, be okay if some cream falls in your cup. 
Right on. Um, cool. So we, we kind of went through some of the, the, the commercial milks that um, are on the shelves, kind of how we can either uh, find the best version or even, uh, I guess what you <coughs> ended with there is buy milk and, and reintrodu- reintroduce some nu- nutritional benefits into that milk. Yep. Um, and milk being the carrier. Um, kind, of, kind of moving on to the next the next part here is is um, still kind of commercial milks, like kind of found in the stores, but uh, these are these are plant based milks. Mm-hmm. And I know that you know you know I go to a coffee shop and um, it's almost like not hip to get regular milk in your coffee. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how the else to say latte. it. Yeah, I mean like yeah, and and I taste it. And I think to myself, yeah, it might be more hip to say oat milk latte, but like this tastes off the <laughs> texture is not what i want in a latte you know what i mean does it even get frothy at that point it, i just i don't know man it, it uh <clears throat> um so so talk to me about plant-based milks their nutritional differences what, what are we what are we dealing with here yeah so this is a this is a topic i feel passionately about because a i really despise the term milk applied to anything other than a lactating mammal because truly that's what characterizes our you know various species is that we have uh, the ability to produce milk almonds soybeans oats like none of that should fall into that category and it's really infuriating because what it does is it confuses the consumer to assume that they are nutritional equivalents that hey, I don't want to participate in dairy. I don't. I don't like the videos of all of the cows lined up in a row with these machine milkers, and they're they're being force fed these grains so that they're super fat and produce a ton of milk. And they're even like a modern breed of cow. Like we didn't even get into the different types of breeds, but like the modern Holstein is just like not a pretty cow when she's not treated right. So. I, I empathize with that. I, I understand we don't want to participate in that sort of industrial dairy game. But to say that they are plant-based milks is just the most inaccurate statement in the world. So I, I know that obviously it's industry standard and obviously everyone's used to calling them milk. It's the same with plant-based meat. Um, it, yeah. So I just want to make that point out that before I even go into like the nutritional differences they're not it's like comparing apples to oranges raw apples to raw oranges right (laughs) like it's it's um i almost want to shy away from doing a side-by-side nutritional facts comparison because yes we can look at okay how much protein is in soy milk versus how much protein is in cow's milk but we have to talk about bioavailability we have to talk about the um type of vitamin that is actually in that Um, is it naturally occurring or was it fortified after that plant, you know, juice? I think plant (laughs) tea is more appropriate. Like like plant juice. Yeah. After that sort of remaining watery liquid that was used to extract something out of the soy, the oat, the almond, the coconut, coconut milk's a little bit different, right? Because that's sort of a whole food. But, um, all of these milks, uh, Oftentimes, we just fortify them with the vitamins that we find in dairy, like true dairy. And then we, because we like to throw up nutrition fact labels and we like to just train our society how to read that instead of understanding like the biochemical side of it or the physiological side of it, um, 
we just pretend like they're the same. So I, I was, as I was preparing for this episode and, and reading into it, I was ready to like talk about soy milk and almond milk and all of the sort of downfalls with those. But I realized that oat milk is becoming very quickly the number one most popular plant-based milk in the U.S. Oat milk latte. Oat milk latte. Yeah. And a huge part of that is specifically because there's um, a company who, you know, was killing it called Oatly. They've since come under fire a couple different ways uh they're having some pr issues but um oatly is this like revolutionary company who's creating oat milk and has really contributed to the rise of its popularity and i think it's interesting because um you know they i browsed their website for like 45 minutes like i don't want to pretend like i'm a i didn't call the ceo and have a conversation right so i'm not an oatly expert but what from from what i gathered on their website i I saw both good and bad. So my first thought was like oat milk. And I even have this in the curriculum. Like we talk about the proper preparation of grains. Um, Oats are obviously a grain. We need to soak those with an acidic medium for some period of time to cut down phytic acid. And if you're not buying organic, then it's, it's probably laden with glyphosate because that's used as a desiccant. So I was like, oh, like why would we want a bunch of glyphosate? So a lot of oat milk out there is likely... Um, has they, has those issues, has those pitfalls, yes. Got it. Oatly, however, they say specific, because I looked it up, I was like, pesticide residue in oats is so common that 43 out of 45 samples studied contained the pesticide glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. So we're talking about 43 out of 45 samples, right? So that's why, and, and obviously glyphosate is banned in the use of organic farming. So that's why there's always this push against glyphosate to, to reach for the organic, even if it's USDA organic, which a lot of people still have issues with. So on their website, they say, why don't they have a really robust sort of FAQ section? Why don't we use organic oats? And they say, oh, that we certify our gluten-free oats from conventional farms, but they do testing for glyphosate, which I was like, okay, well, that's, that's a step in the right direction. But then as I got further down in their in their process, I realized, oh, they're they're fortifying their milk. So it says, you know, we fortify oatly milk with vitamins and minerals because we want to offer our vegan friends a delicious dairy alternative that is also nutritionally balanced. They add calcium, potassium, vitamin A, D, B12, riboflavin, which are all 100% vegan friendly, which tells me that they're all 100% plant derived or chemical compounds, right? So... One of the things I talk about on my Instagram and in the nutrition curriculums and all of that is this difference between plant-based vitamins and animal-based vitamins. And vitamin A is a great example because there's no true vitamin A in plant foods. We can only get true retinol from animal-based foods. So when I see that they're um, they're fortifying these milks with basically synthetic vitamins, that's a concern for me. But then it gets even worse because as I'm reading um, – they then pasteurize their oat milk. So I hope that this opens our listeners' minds to realize that milk is not the only thing being pasteurized in the store. Actually, every single fluid that is uh, produced, every single natural fluid, I should say, every single lemonade and orange juice and even fresh-pressed juices have to be pasteurized. Otherwise, they have to have a label on the side that says, you know, this has not been pasteurized, consume at your own risk. So they use ultra-high temp pasteurization 
for their oat milk, which is what we just talked about, that really high temperature. And then they're also homogenizing it. And you, th- you might wonder, like, what kind of fat is in oat milk that they have to homogenize it? And so this particular company is using canola oil or rapeseed oil, as they say. Um, and I have outlined issues with canola oil, I feel like, to death. So I don't even want to get into that. But the fact that they're taking this plant-based milk and they're s- synthetically um, fortifying it and then they're running it through the same processing that I call issue with with traditional dairy, all adds up to the same thing. This is not a nutritional equivalent. This is not something that I would rely on for any source of bioavailable vitamins. There's no enzymes in here. There's no real uh, bioavailable protein in here. And there's certainly no like healthy beneficial bacteria. So, so you're basically just bringing the smoke to Oatly. When you say, because it's not every, this is just one case. Now they're all probably very no, similar. No, every single plant-based milk is going to be pasteurized for sure. I'm okay. just, I'm just laying this out so that people understand that you're not, you're not, um, you're not avoiding the downfalls of pasteurization by reaching for your plant-based milk. Got it. Got it. Everything is going to be pasteurized. Now the pasteurization of a synthetically infused plant juice. Yes. What are there, is that eliminating some of the benefits that they're trying to infuse anyway? Like what's going on there? Uh, so it's not a living food, right? So it, they're basically taking oats that they soak in water and they mash that up. And then they, I, I read the whole process. Um, the pasteurization process with oat milk, with other like juices as well, is to sterilize the product to make sure that it's like clean and won't be a vector for disease. It's the same way if you left, um, I don't know, a bowl full of something on the counter. Like it could, it has potential to. Yeah, totally. So, but but it's that, that that pasteurization process isn't eliminating the vitamins or proteins or things that they're injecting in. Oh no, it absolutely is. So they're injecting. That's what I was asking. So they're injecting stuff in, and then essentially diminishing it through the pasteurization process anyway. Yes, but according to the FDA. Um, pasteurization does not denature our food. It doesn't destroy critical enzymes and it doesn't inhibit uh, vitamin content. So this is where, again, in the, in the children's nutrition curriculum, I have a whole page called When Experts Disagree. And I basically have quotes from the FDA and the CDC. And then I have quotes from dairy farmers and, and really established medical professionals who they're both saying two different things. And this is so common in the real food space. Like we have two different narratives. We have two different sets of data. We have two different lived, you know, anecdotal um, stockpiles of people's experiences. And yet we come to two different conclusions. And so it's like in this day and age when you can sort of quantify anything or you can dig into like the molecular level and claim a certain amount of protein or whatever like when we're taking these tiny snapshots of nutrition yeah you can form an argument for just about anything that can qualify as healthy but it doesn't take into account what is natural what is whole what is not denatured and what is bioavailable and so those are the points that I really want to drive in here is that your almond milk your soy milk, first of all, soy has so many issues that we won't even get into. Um, your oat milk, all of these things f- have, fall prey to those same issues that we find with pasteurized milk. And, and honestly, end of the day, 
I didn't need to say any of this because plant-based milks are just not dairy. And it's funny because on their website, they so they praise the fact that um, they were successful in stopping the Amendment 171, which was a proposal in the European Parliament that would prohibit the use of any dairy-related language, packaging, or imagery for plant-based products. Because it's the same thing I'm saying. Like, I take issue with the fact that they're using the word milk um, or, like, vegan cheese right like don't use the same labeling <laughs> because it's not it's yeah. not inherently that it's, it's all about, we talked about this before it's all about branding right if it they called it branding. if they called it you know almond tea no one would drink it almond juice you know you know no one no one wants that or almond yeah um, and so they they're really happy about that because they feel like that was a push forward you know and they they want to continue and they they even did like this 10 minute video where they set up um, focus groups in quotes and they basically put out a jug of regular milk and a jug of their milk and just had people point to which one's real milk and they did it first like everyone just sitting at the table and just pointing easily and then they would get creative and they would have everyone like have their back to them and then turn around quickly and point as fast as they can they turned it into this game and very much their culture and their company and their whole vibe is to like it's very um, playful and kid-friendly. Even their like annual report is like bright pink. And me reading it, it's really difficult text to read. And, and someone who just, maybe I'm just too old. I don't know. I, I didn't. The point is that it, it was this very playful dialogue around the fact that people aren't stupid. They know that oat milk isn't from a cow. But my point is um, the language is confusing because, yeah, they are actually associating this food as a good alternative. It's called a dairy alternative. We need to stop saying that. It's not an alternative. It is in a different category all its own. And and it just I guess it just depends on what you define as an alternative, right? Because <laughs> if you define alternative as in, like, I'm just not going to consume dairy, yeah, then it's just not a dairy product, right? Same thing as if you're eating, you know, um, those vegan cheeses, man, they're like made from cashews, cashews yeah. just ground up into a paste. And mm -hmm. if someone said, hey, we're going to have some you know, cheese display, I bought you some, you know, some cashew paste, um, it would be uh, less, less, apt less appetizing. So sure. um, right on anything else on plant based juices. No, I don't I don't even want to give it any more stage time. Honestly, the whole yeah. conversation I mean, I think you can hear my frustrated I tone. Can hear it. It's it's not that I'm <laughs> mad at people who drink it. I just I'm I get frustrated in an industry that allows for so much ambiguity because the consumers are already so confused. So when you have a food system or a market space that's just continuously adding more confusion and people are just getting sicker, that's where I feel like my like defense mechanisms like rise up and I want to like tell people the truth like if you want to if you want to make homemade almond milk i'm fine with that please don't buy the commercial almond milk sold in the stores if you want to um soak oats in your house whatever great don't consider that a nutritional equivalent to whole raw dairy so i, I won't keep repeating myself but that that's all i want to say on the topic um yeah right on um We've talked a lot about, um, and, 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 and we are moving on, and I don't want to keep you know beating this topic, but man, is it a huge deal to talk about, I think, um, these milk 
imposters. Yeah, that's a right? great, that's a great word. Because it really is something that is becoming so extremely prevalent that it almost makes it the most, if, if you get anything out of this, this podcast today, oh my gosh, um, you know, drinking almond milk is not going to, you know, take you down. It's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I'm speaking to all those out there that are ordering oat milk, oat milk lattes, right? It's just, it's not, it's not milk. It's not dairy. And it's not that it's a, yeah, it's not that it's a dangerous, right? We're not telling people don't drink orange juice. Right. You know, orange juice is pasteurized too. Mm-hmm. But we're also not saying that there's orange milk and <clears throat> that it's, it's, hey, let's put some orange juice into your coffee. Let's use orange juice as a milk alternative. We're not doing that. And it, it feels like it's almost like a similar uh, comparison, if you will. So, And something I want to just point out really quickly because it's on my mind, so it might be on other people's minds. Um, there is an argument to be made about when you're out in public and you live in a state where raw dairy is not um, widely accessible, meaning it's not sold on grocery store shelves, so it's not legally um, able to be sold in restaurants. Like maybe there is an argument for you to order a plant-based milk if that's your thing at a coffee shop if you're like, I get really sick from pasteurized, homogenized and dairy. And what else, what other option do you have? You're at the coffee shop. Right. You know, Starbucks isn't going to start carrying raw dairy. So I'm not going to... At least not, not in the U.S. Absolutely not. And I'm not going to confirm... I actually, that I have a vision for a coffee shop that would enable some sort of, even just like non-homogenized, but um, I'm not going to um, say outright that their plant-based alternatives are healthy for you or that they are going to be better for you or more nutritionally impactful. But I can understand the desire to say, hey, I don't want to participate in that industry. I know for a fact this milk is coming from a source that I wouldn't feel comfortable consuming. I don't want to drink black coffee. I'm going to have something. So I'm just saying that for anyone who's like, but what about when I'm out in public or I'm at a restaurant? I can understand that. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is the, the integration of dairy into your home. And the reasons why choosing raw dairy could be highly beneficial to your family. Um, obviously, that it's a completely different story when you're eating out. So I just wanted to make that point. Right on. I um, I love that. I think this is an important topic to to discuss. And this leads us to kind of like the, to to the final, you know, swing here, right? Um, let's let's get into let's get into raw dairy deep dive. Let's talk about the 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 hero of this story. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, why, what are the nutritional benefits of raw dairy? Why, why are we steering people to consider that direction for their nutritional journey? Mm -hmm. So there's tons of information you can find online, both pro and against raw dairy. So I'm just going to gloss over this. And then at the end, we'll encourage people to do their own deep dives. But essentially everything that we love about dairy, everything that we consider, um, to uh, attribute to its value nutritionally, like its protein, its enzymes, its um, vitamin content. All of that is whole and active um, and uh, in its most natural form in raw dairy. So if we want to if we want to benefit from milk's nutritional value, it needs to be in its whole raw form. So like I said earlier, the pasteurization process kills a lot of that stuff. So on the flip side, you know, raw milk is a great source of vitamins A, D, and K. And those are our fat-soluble vitamins and often ones that us as Americans are pretty low on. Um, it's a great source of protein. It's a great source of calcium. It's a great source of electrolytes and minerals. It's um, a great source of beneficial fats. 
In fact, the actual buttermilk helps us uptake calcium and the proteins found in the watery portion of the milk. So like it's this whole food designed to be consumed as a whole food, not as a skimmed milk product, not as a a fat-free product, but in its whole cream on top form. And um, it's really like nature's beautiful design that the portions in the cream help us take in the important minerals in the watery portion of the milk. And so it's really a whole food. Um, uh, that's how I would consider it. It's got um, a good balance of carbs and proteins. You have your sugars from your lactose and your proteins in whey and casein. And, um, you know, it even has the beneficial probiotics. Like I said before, the lactobacillus and other probiotic um, beneficial bacteria, which can help, um, you know, uh, establish a balance in the gut. And then um, the raw milk is actually able to facilitate the production of lactase in our gut so that we can break down the lactose. So the the probiotic version, right, this is almost like a, I'm going to say something funny on purpose here, but like the kombucha alternative. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which sometimes kombucha is pasteurized. Turn up. Wow. Yeah. So you, but you can buy raw kombucha at the store. Um. Yeah, exactly. It's and I think that 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 whole movement towards the probiotic foods, the fermented vegetables, the kombuchas. So um, here, this is trending. All this probiotic stuff kefirs. is trending. Yeah. And the reason it's trending is our bodies are crying out for something that it's had for generations. Exactly. It's it's had these foods for so long. We we never took we never popped probiotic pills. We we ate probiotic condiments and vegetables and things like that. That's like our so ketchup funny used to be fermented. And to our think about. Uh, that yeah. we've been on this trend of, hey, you know what? Our bodies need probiotics. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time we take an antibiotic, we, we go out, we buy probiotic. Oh, yeah. When in reality, you know, we haven't been doing that in generations past, not because, you know, this idea of, in, in, you know, introducing probiotics to our gut was um, not around or not available, but because it was just naturally occurring. And um, that is that is super super interesting. Anything, anything else on on the the benefits or nutritional value of of, uh, of raw milk? I know I cut you off there to, to joke about kombucha. So no, I mean I think I covered it. And I I love the little chart that I have in the children's nutrition curriculum, which I actually took from Organic Pastures, and it has this chart of like one category is raw cow's milk, one category is pasteurized cow's milk. Then you have pasteurized nut products. Then you have pasteurized soy products. And you have pasteurized coconut products. Because remember, like I said, milk is not the only thing being pasteurized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the on the sidebar, it has like enzymes, probiotics, healthy fats, proteins, vitamins, calcium. And of course, in raw milk, all of those things are either active or intact, meaning our proteins are not um, denatured. If you think about the intense molecular... Um, destructuring of homogenization that also impacts the proteins not just the fats Um, but then in every other category that is falls under the pasteurized um, product those things are inactive destroyed or altered or inhibited like calcium it says is inhibited in all of those other things which is what i said earlier that pasteurization destroys some of those elements so it's really less of like what is the benefit of raw milk and more of what is the benefit of milk when we don't tamper with it? Like mm-hmm. it's the reason why we were drinking milk in the first place for thousands of years. Those I'm just calling out as those are actually true 
nutritional facts versus the milk we find in the grocery store might have some of those things on the label. But again, we have to remember, have those things been altered with? Just because you have a protein count on the side of the carton doesn't mean that your body is uptaking that percentage of protein. So I think something that I've even learned just from a just from our conversation right right here right now and i have always been a little bit off put by raw milk mm-hmm. and and it's not because i think i don't believe that it's going to hurt me or harm me or be bad for me or i don't think that i just doesn't sound appealing the branding of it being called raw milk i believe is a factor yeah i hear somebody say you want some raw milk i'm like I mean, like, without getting into the details, that just initially sounds kind of gross. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound as appetizing as, you know. Clean milk. Yeah, clean, yeah. processed, you know, whatever. And then, and then you know, quite frankly, the viscosity and the, the separation factor of it, because it's something I'm just not used to, it's not normal. It's different. Yeah. And uh, that's always something that's hard for, you know, someone in their late 20s or early 30s that is looking to introduce something into their life. Uh, I mean, even beyond, you could be in your 60s mm-hmm. and you've never seen milk that is, that's probably not true if you're 60, 70, maybe you've seen it before. But the, um, the, the separation factor in a milk jug where you have to shake it to combine um, the cream kind of hitting the cap and, mm-hmm. and opening it up and seeing that. And me now understanding that that is only eliminated through a process of homogenizing the milk where you're just forcing it to the screen, meaning that the milk is the same makeup in some mm-hmm. way or another, and then it's altered physically um, so that it becomes more normal. Um, Homogenous, yeah. It just it it. Um, I think that's a that's a major like breakthrough for me. And I, maybe everyone out there is like, yeah, totally. You're you know. You're crazy that we all felt this way. Well, me, the, 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 the goes to work, comes home and my wife says, by the way, we're drinking raw milk now. (laughs) Um, there were some barriers there for me to get into raw milk beyond just quite frankly, I never for a minute, never for a minute was like, yeah, we can't drink milk straight from the cow. It has to be pasteurized. Don't you know? Mm. I never thought that or even said that I, I was like not even remotely worried. To me, it was like, yeah, that's how milk is consumed. And we, you know, boil it off so that it, you know, can be commercialized. That was always something that I understood. Interesting. Um, and and it wasn't a weird thing for me. It was There wasn't much of a barrier for me to think that it was, you know, obvious that we could drink milk uh, straight from the cow because, quite frankly, um, I feel like that's also kind of commonly understood, that you can drink milk straight from the cow. Now... It's, I, I, it's interesting though, because I did have a real fear around that. And I think so many of us do. And I think unless you have a family cow and you have milked it before, or you have a f- close friend who has one or a farmer, or, you know, luckily in 2022, we have like massive Instagram accounts who they have family cows. And I think it's sort of normalizing this again, because if you're going in your backyard to milk your cow, you're not sending it to a processing plant to to pasteurize it would be insane or taking it inside and putting it on the stove exactly no one's doing that um, because we know the health of our cows i do want to say that it is a different product and that it definitely sours 
versus spoils. So you have um, commercial milk, which has been pasteurized, sort of sterilized. That milk, eventually, if you leave it in your fridge for three weeks, plus it will spoil. It will become actually dangerous for you to consume because obviously it has none of that um, beneficial environment to like age well mm-hmm. um all of those components have been destroyed all of its sort of like protective measures have been taken out raw milk as a living food actually ch- continues to change and, and goes on this progression over time and so i like to just tell people because a lot of people are like when is it freshest tasting and does it taste different well you know yes it can taste a little bit different i say it's freshest from days seven to ten so within like the first week that you're getting it um, but then after that, it sours and it becomes something called clabber, which you can actually use up to like weeks after that milk has been sitting in your fridge. And it, you've seen it in our fridge before. It separates the way actually separates. It's this clear yellow sort of fluid, the cream on top. And you can shake that up. You can you can ferment foods with that. Um, I've made beet kvass with the way that I've extracted from our separated milk. Uh, you can add that to sauces you can be careful it will curdle a lot quicker since it's already sort of on its way um you can throw that in smoothies pancakes there's all different ways so if you're looking for like hey i have a a jug of milk that's two weeks old in my fridge and remember this applies to raw milk only um look up clabber and and find recipes that you can utilize because it is a different product and there is a little bit of a learning curve to say like hey actually we don't enjoy drinking this after four days great only drink it for those first four days and then throw it in your baked goods or find other uses for it yeah yeah um right on i i um i feel i've benefited from this conversation already which is uh which is which is great Um, (laughs) that's really why i decided to do this podcast because i thought joey needs to learn more information the um I think the thing that is really powerful that I want to uh, emphasize a lot in the final kind of portion of this discussion is, hey, we can preach all the benefits. We can talk about why you should drink raw dairy. We can talk about commercial milk. We can talk about the history, all the stuff we've talked about. Now, when, when it comes to actually attaining or acquiring raw dairy right raw milk real milk living milk whatever Mm -hmm. there can be some there can be some potential nuances to that um that uh um it might be hard to figure out on your own and and i want to make sure that we really do a good job today of um getting people kind of pointed in the right direction when it comes to finding milk for themselves absolutely yeah safe Uh, and responsible sourcing is something I preach all day long because um, there are two different types of raw milk. There's raw milk intended to be pasteurized, meaning produced by farmers who then sell that to a processing plant. And then there's raw milk um, intended to be consumed as such. And so you want to make extra clear that your farmer or your milk producer is um, falls in the latter category because I know when we first got started on this journey, people were like, oh, well, I live really close to a dairy, you know, a conventional dairy. Can I just ask them like, hey, can I have some of your milk before you guys send it off to be pasteurized? And even if that dairy, and again, every time I post about this on my Instagram, I have dairy farmers chime in and say like, don't, don't say or don't paint this picture that commercial dairies are always um, 
sort of like less than in their sanitary measures. And I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that because of the current regulations, we have to make a distinction. And because we operate in a system where the vast majority of our milk is processed to be, is created to be processed and pasteurized, um, I have to tell people that it is not a safe or responsible choice to acquire raw dairy from a farmer who is sending all of their milk to be pasteurized. Now, here's the um, sort of like side note on that. So there are plenty of farms that produce both. There are plenty of dairies who sell pasteurized dairy on their shelves and also have dairy that they sell raw to consumers. So that is an instance where they basically are producing all of their dairy um, in a manner that is appropriate to consume raw. They just happen to be pasteurizing a portion of that. And I actually visited a dairy like that in Illinois. And, and you can see it right on. It's fascinating because it was sold for the same price. three twenty-five dollars a gallon for raw milk, which is insane because raw milk is typically much, much more expensive. Um... So I just want to start off right off the bat. You are looking, if you're looking for raw dairy, and and first we'll start just U.S. specific, right? Because it's different in other countries for sure. But just for those who are like, I thought raw milk was illegal. Um, I want to clarify and say that the distribution and sale of raw dairy is um, something that has regulations around it. The actual fluid dairy product in the U.S. is not an illegal substance. So, like, it's not illegal to own a lactating cow. It's not illegal to have a cow in your backyard, milk it, and drink the milk. Um, It's not illegal to share that milk with other people. In other countries, it absolutely can be. So, the retail is what we have restrictions around, and so uh, that's what I want to get into the weeds a little bit about. So, In the U.S. specifically, there are 13 states where you can find raw dairy, either goat or cow milk, on the grocery store shelves. Um, Sometimes that milk is sold um, for human consumption. Sometimes that milk is sold for as pet food only. Um, And sometimes, like, you can only get goat milk or you can only get cow's milk. Uh, The 13 states I have listed here are Arizona, California, Connecticut, Idaho, Maine, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Nevada, South Carolina, Utah, Vermont, and Washington. Um, You can get raw goat milk in stores in Oregon, but not cow's milk. I also know Florida, you can can purchase um, raw milk for pet food only, so I'm not sure that they're they're wrapping that into the 13 states but uh, realmilk.com has all the information for sourcing raw dairy in your local state Um, there's also 17 states where raw milk is allowed to be sold on the farm so again you have a, a weird sort of regulation saying you can sell this milk on the farm only like people can come and pick it up and buy it here but it just can't be transported to a store it cannot they're trying be to prevent yeah okay even like a farm stand, like it, it can't be tra- transported to a um, farmer's market, right? So it has to be on farm purchases, which the dairy that I visited in Illinois was on farm purchases. So, um, and then eight states allow cow shares or herd shares. And I just want to talk about this for a moment because this is exactly how we legally obtain dairy in our state of Ohio um, is basically the dairy operation is its own private LLC and we buy into this herd share meaning that we are agreeing to pay for the cows housing their feed their water everything that the cow might need so we own a portion of that herd and in return as the owners of a of that herd we are 
um, entitled to the milk produced by that cow. I am not purchasing raw dairy from a farmer. I am not exchanging money for the milk jug. I am I am submitting my resources so that that farmer can raise my cow, essentially is what the legality of that looks like. So because that's the structure of it, um, every farmer, every dairy producer who engages, I wouldn't say every, I would say most dairy producers who decide to utilize this herd share program or this private membership association or private buying club, um, it falls outside of the USDA and the FDA's regulations. So because this is, they're not selling to the public, they are a private um, club that we have reached in a contractual agreement on, they are not having the FDA walk their grounds. They're not being inspected by the FDA. They are not, they don't frankly want the FDA or USDA on their property because there's there's been issues, right? There's there's always a legal tension between raw milk producers and um, our regulatory agencies. So that being said, that makes it super important that the consumer does their due, due diligence. And I don't want to freak people out and say like, oh, you have to just be you know, Aaron Brockovich for the next six months finding your milk mm-hmm. source. But I I don't want to minimize the the fact that you're responsible at the end of the day. Um, and I'm not going to say that people never have found listeria in their milk. Um, is it something that happens on a regular basis? No. Actually, the numbers uh, fall on the side of pasteurized milk for the, mo- for the most illness and death, which is really surprising. But here are some things that you can ask your farmer. I always recommend having a conversation with them when you're entering into a herd share program. And yeah, there's a little bit of paperwork that goes into that. There's a little bit of documentation. Usually there's like a, a one-time processing fee. And then after that, you're either given um, like a set amount of milk per month or like our situation is a private membership um, association. And so we can sort of choose like what quantities of milk we want each month. But some good questions to ask your farmer when you're entering into this space is really basic. Like, where do your cows spend their time? Are they in stalls or are they out in the field? Are they, you know, m- most cows are going to be grass-fed anyways, but like, can I visit the farm? You can always ask those questions. And a farmer with integrity um, is going to let you on his property and will happily show you his healthy cows. Uh, he might ask you to not bring your phone and take videos and photos. He might ask you to not like physically document anything but he will welcome you and have a conversation with you um on his property so um obviously like what do your cows eat are they eating grass and alfalfa and hay in the winter are they supplemented with corn and soy feed if they are is it non-gmo is it organic what are we working with here um basically all these questions point to the health of the cow what kind of cow is it is it a jersey cow producing a2a2 milk is it a holstein um how do you milk your cows by hand or by machine there's two there's different you know implications for both of those with machines you have to you have to sanitize them um, with specific chemicals and and sometimes you can flush the lines and it's no big deal Um, with hand milking obviously that's a much more manual process so you know does that open up a room for potential contamination like these are questions you need to ask your farmer what measures do you take when milking to ensure that you're, that no harmful bacteria um, contaminate your milk products, right? So usually there's like an iodine cleanse of the udders that you use. You wipe them clean. You're using a sterile pail. 
these guys know their stuff. And I think just having a conversation with you, all of these answers will be, all of these questions would be answered without you even having to utter them. But having this list is just really helpful. Yeah, totally. Walking in with them. Um, and then do you test for harmful pathogens or do you test for cow health? Um, not every farm does. Uh, but if they do, they should give you access to their records, especially if you're entering into a herd share program. It's really likely that they're that they're open with their testing and they can show you, hey, these things were not detected in our milk. Um, so that that's basic sort of U.S. sourcing. I, I do want to say that it is different for people in other parts of the world. So for can- in Canada, for example, Canada is really tricky. And I have a lot of Canadian followers that I've talked to that are like, I just cannot get raw milk here. I mean, farmers are being fined $250,000 just for giving away raw dairy. I mean, it's a really dangerous um, and like facing up to three years in prison. Like it's wild, the crackdown. I do know that there are some Canadians who um, have been able to utilize the herd share program. I think they are in Vancouver. And so if you're not in that province or you're not on that side of Canada, like it, it might be hard for you. Um, and so, again, that's where I say the best thing you can do is reach for that non-homogenized, low-temp pasteurized milk if you can find it. Or, like, there's nothing stopping you from, well, there's lots of things probably stopping you. But you could absolutely, like, get your own cow. The, still in Canada, you can milk your own cow and consume it. There's actually some regulation around whether you can serve that milk to your guests in your house. So it gets a little bit squirrely. But I would encourage people to get connected into their local food system and see if there's there's a way that they can... Um, obtain it in an ethical and responsible way and i mean there's reasons why we don't have a cow today (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i I shouldn't have said there's no reason we can't have a cow there's no legal reason why you can't have a cow in canada maybe lifestyle choices yeah yeah or just yeah okay (laughs) or personal preference uh in europe they a lot of countries have on farm sales um some have retail sales of milk i know germany holland belgium switzerland france denmark sweden um on farm retail sales on-farm and some retail sales, sorry, of raw milk is permitted. Um, I believe Africa, I think the only source I had for that was Zimbabwe, and um, absolutely raw milk is pretty accessible there. Um, And I'm trying to think of what other countries we were discussing. I I do want to say the only state in the U.S. where raw milk is really, really not an option is Nevada. So unfortunately, there is one state um, that falls red on the map that it's, it's, basically outlawed to all degrees and um yeah I, there's there's not a whole lot I can say about that but um at the end of the day us as a consumer um you know we're very used to having like the powers that be clear different foods and safety and and tell us what's good for us and what's not and and raw milk is a little bit different in that um it actually asks us to participate in the sourcing process and we actually have to be willing to meet our food producers and I love it for that reason and I also hate it for that reason because there's such a um, emotional barrier that comes with that and there's an intellectual sort of blockade that's like but everything else is telling me that this is dangerous and unhealthy and I think at the end of the day me talking for however long we've been chatting today on this podcast is not going to convince anyone to drink raw milk I hope that it opens their eyes to the different sides of the conversation and at the end of the day I always tell people um, in whatever way that we interact whether it's like online or through this podcast or through my resources 
use that for a springboard to um, launch into your own research. I think us taking our health into our own hands is something I want to advocate for. I never want to say that I have the end all be all the most accurate information of the world. Um, I am incredibly diligent in my research and especially on a topic about raw milk um, where I think it's important that we we accurately represent the other side of that. Um, so I, I want you to have confidence in this conversation, but I also want you to um, dig in and make some of this learning and understanding your own. Get some skin in the game. And um, I'll list some good resources uh, on the show notes for sure for people to dive in. Right on. I, I think um, I think that was a spectacular kind of overview of, of kind of how you can obtain raw milk, uh, where to find it, kind of some of the variances of different areas. I think it's really interesting that the hot spot in the world of where it's hard to potentially or, or iffy on raw dairy is North America yeah where really everywhere else is a lot more open to the idea or or if not it just it would be confusing to some people to say hey you don't cook your milk first They'd right be like what yeah, and I think at the end of the day, like North America in in general is very disconnected from traditional um, food culture. Like we really lack that uh, for a number of reasons. So I think that's why we tend to be more willing to adopt an industrial product than we are to partake in something that has been historically consumed for centuries. That's fascinating. And so um, I know that we read out of a book uh, in the midst of the podcast today um definitely want to give people the ability to find that book we also were referencing um the homegrown education workbook right and yep. and that was um that, that was kind of the resources that we utilized to um, gather the information for for this episode and, and we want to make those things accessible to, to all of you we want everyone that's listening to this to uh, join us on the journey towards uh, better understanding around nutrition, better understanding about raw, around raw dairy. And the journey never really stops because uh, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to improve and get better and grow. Um, and so we, we want to encourage people to uh, to do that research and, and we've enabled you to do so through resources that we've created. Mm -hmm. um, and so talk to me about the the two workbooks for um, for for students, for, for kids. Yeah, so the children's nutrition curriculum, the largest lesson in that book, where, which there's 27 lessons, the largest lesson is lesson nine, and that's the lesson on milk. Um, there's also a corresponding lesson that goes through the entire timeline of cow's milk. And so obviously this, this topic of dairy is really important and really critical because it's just another example of um, – the the ma this massive shift towards uh, highly processed foods and so when we sort of peel back the layers on that and we see that there's these whole rich living foods that we can consume well there's also a lot of background and information we need to learn before we can make that step so the nutrition curriculum for students this first workbook that I read from today um, or at least reference. I don't even know if I read verbatim from it, but that's really for those third through sixth grade students who are old enough to have some framework or some um, context around the food they eat and maybe can get a little bit into like the uh, biology or um, even just the nitty gritty of nutrition where we talk about 
um, each role of each vitamin or the minerals or the macronutrients. So that is definitely a detailed, rich book for students to give them a counter narrative to the things that they might be learning in mainstream dietary um, guidelines, which, you know, we addressed in the previous podcast. So if you're like, what is that? Go listen to that previous podcast. And so this, this workbook you're referencing is the third through sixth grade level, uh, get your kids on the path towards understanding nutrition and, and, and how food, um, is meant to be meant to be consumed and, and, um, kind of, what we should be you know, looking for Absolutely. in our food. Mm-hmm. Now, we also have a, a workbook that is an activity book mm-hmm. for younger students. Yep. Um, what age group would you say that's really targeted for? That's really for the pre-K students all the way up to about second grade. So even yesterday I was answering someone's question. Um, personally, in our home, in our homeschooling, we do not do any sort of workbook activity until beyond age five. And so that's sort of the approach I took with this workbook. You know, a three-year-old might be able to hold a pencil, but is it is it as effective as play-based learning? I'm not sure. So <clears throat> it's really for that five and six-year-old that pre-k you know they might be entering kindergarten they might not be um student to get familiarized with real food we do talk about raw dairy in that book as well obviously and broken down into less um, technical terms but we chat about it there's a whole lesson on it and uh kids learn what a cow looks like in the udder and all the things it's familiarizing kids with with these these uh it's introduction so that's 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 awesome now we also have some stuff for for you adults out there to kind of get you on the path i mean we know that one of the best ways that uh, you know we kind of alter this generation take back kind of the the understanding of what nutritional food is is through um leading leading by example and so it's it, it can oftentimes start with us yeah uh, for that we've created the uh, real food guide that's that's basically this curriculum um amplified up a little bit and uh, we took the coloring you know and handwriting out out and you know if you want that you know you can buy the workbook for yourself but <laughs> we have a version for you without it uh, that's called the real food guide and uh, finally um, there's a major tension point when you're getting on this path this journey and that's that it takes a little bit more work to make meals when you are making them from scratch and when you know your ingredients and when you're shopping and and we don't want to get people into a position because we know people are busy where they're on this journey they're on this path they're buying the real foods and they get home from work at night and they're like oh my gosh i'm exhausted and i got no plan for dinner i'm on this journey but screw it i'm hungry i'm ordering a pizza or and um, um we identified this tension within our within our own home uh, because we're on the journey, we're on the path, and it's tough. And so every time I would come home and ask Elizabeth, ask Liz, hey, uh, what's for dinner? And uh, I'd be met with um, moderate resistance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Um, it's like you're being caught unorganized and just like you know every stay-at-home mom every work-from-home mom every every woman who is greeted even working parents like of course they're driving home they're like oh my gosh what is for dinner but there's something about when you are the primary uh homemaker and you're at home already so there's kind of this expectation like well you you have access to the kitchen maybe you can get us started and then you don't and you're like don't even think about it till 5 45 at night it feels like you've 
failed your family a bit. That's how I have felt. I'm not saying anyone should take on my shame at all. I am actually saying the opposite. I'm actually saying that the moment I sat down with Joey and was like, hey, what if we just planned like four meals a week? Or what if we just had a little bit of a framework for how I can shop so that I can stretch these meals? Um, We did that for about six months. And then eventually Joey was like, you just need to build this into a resource. And so I wrote What's for Dinner, which is six weeks worth of nightly meals with cooking instructions, with a shopping list for each week, um, with prep cues for the night ahead, you know, because sometimes we're making sourdough or we're making a, a... of slaw that should be soaked overnight or something and I want to give you cues for that I want you to have a continuous view of your meals and you're not just starting each day from scratch um so that's what the what's for dinner resource is and uh, it's 42 meals all real food based there's a, a sourcing you know sort of guide in the beginning and portioning for families of all sizes you know if it's just you if it's you and your husband if it's you and your 10 kids like you can scale that to your needs um and that's really exciting. So. so there's there's resources that we've created for for kids to kind of sh- help shape the next generation, take back this understanding of uh, real food, take back the demand. Hey, if we if if everyone if if we start to create a movement of people that is that is demand that are demanding real food, um, more real food will be will be available. That's mm-hmm. just that's just how the world works. Mm-hmm. Uh, the commercialization of of any industry or category. Um, can change it one way or the other, and um, this is kind of where we are today. Now, that being said, um, we've also created fo- uh, resources for adults, like What's for Dinner and f- uh, the Real Food Guide. Um, get on homegrowneducation.org uh, to, to find those resources. That's homegrowneducation.org. You can um, f- find those books, buy those books. Uh, physically, there's some digital versions of some of those books on there as well, um, and, and, and get started. Get in, get in the game. With that, um, if you wanted to find or learn more about um, Liz and her raw dairy endeavors or... Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. (laughs) uh, You can find her on Instagram. That's uh, at at homegrown underscore education. Mm -hmm. And if you would like to learn more about someone that doesn't know a ton about raw dairy, (laughs) but is... (laughs) A supportive but, spouse. But as a supportive spouse, uh, you can find me at Joey Hazelmeyer. Um, Don't undersell yourself. You, you talk about hunting and bourbon and business. And uh, for all the women out there, if your husbands are having issues or not issues, if your husbands are showing resistance to you, maybe just like recommend that they reach out to Joey. I've already had several people ask me like, do you know of any male people in this space who I can talk to? Because I I have like a lot of moms in my feed. And I was like, honestly, like you can chat with my husband if you want. So uh, I feel like you're actually a great resource because you, you offer that uh, very balanced approach and you also just have different interests that I have than I have. And, and I think that aligns with other people as well. Right on. Well, I'll take it. And, um, Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Until next time.